Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs, joined as always by my good friend, Christopher Funderberg. Hi, John. Hello, Chris. And this is our genre fiction podcast. We only talk about movies about 20% on this one, as opposed to 99 to 100% on the other one. But um, how's everybody doing? Now that you're going to give them time to answer, people yell into their... Everyone yell into the computer. Or their phone. How do people leave and listen to podcasts? I don't know. We're clearly the correct people to be doing this. This hasn't <laughs> been a grave mistake from day one. No, I'm actually excited today. I want to thank all, all of our Patreon subscribers for listening. Uh, we do this show because uh, we want to give something back to our Patreon subscribers who support the website and support the writers on the site, writers getting paid and doing our part to chip away at the exploitative gig economy that exists. Writing is worth nothing. That writer should work for free. And um, this is the bonus, the Patreon podcast. Today's episode, John and I have wanted to do some short stories for a while, especially in genre. John and I are both big fans of short stories, and it gets short shrift a lot of the time. And genre short stories in particular are great and something we love. So we had the idea to each pick a handful of short stories uh, and, you know, I would pick three and John would pick three and we'd each write, write, uh, uh, read the other one's picks, but instead it ended up being more curated than that. John and I more got together and picked five short stories to talk about today. We're going to be picking five short stories from the author we selected. And John, which writer did we pick? We selected Edogawa Lampo. Yes. I hope I said it correctly. It's the Japanese phonetic pronunciation of Edgar Allan Poe, which is the pen name of one Hirei Taro. Yeah. And the thing about, you might say, Itagawa Rampo. How does that sound like Edgar Allan Poe? And I've been trying to say it, and I swear to God, the only way it comes if you do it, Itaga Allan Poe, right? If you sound like a fucking racist, you can make it sound like Edaga Aranpo, right? Instead of Itagawa Rampo, right? And, uh, but that's not a joke I'm making. That's a joke he was making. So it's his fucking fault. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on his, all on his side. Yes. But, uh, but this is a fantastic writer, uh, specifically of short stories. I mean, he also wrote several novels, but... Uh, Which are good, but not as good. Yeah, no, the short fiction is really where it's at for this guy. Um, he uh, was born and lived it's notable in the, in the Meiji period of Japan which was significantly when uh, Japan was opening up to the West for the first time in two centuries after two centuries of national seclusion and that's important because Western literature came flooding into the country at this point and we're talking you know late 19th early 20th century so if there was one writer at that time in Japan who was absolutely influenced had to have been, and not only in selecting his pen yeah. name, I would say it had to be Rampo. Yes, yes. Because while everyone else, you know, kind of found poetry and romanticism uh, and things like that, you think, you know, a writer like, who was born around the same time as Rampo was um, uh, Akutagawa, right? The famous writer who wrote Rashomon. Yeah. And that's all very lyrical, very poetic kind of writing. Rampo really had no peer at the time. He's mainly famous in Japan for his crime fiction, his detective fiction, but he also 
kind of created, maybe accidentally created this other genre in Japan, which is known as Iroguro Nansensu, erotic, erotic grotesque. grotesque nonsense, which is a terrific which, genre to, to create. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think a lot of people associate like that being the most Japanese of genres too. When you think of like Japanese art, what makes it unique? It's like the erotic grotesque nonsense variety of it. Absolutely. But especially, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, I would say in cinema, especially has been very influenced by that. Uh, at the time though, it's also we should say he was writing, you know, talking about his influences and who he influenced. Um, he has basically two chunks to his career. He was writing in the twenties and early thirties, then world war two happens and he doesn't write much. And then in the late forties through the fifties is the other time. But so he's like, it's interesting. Just keep that in mind as we're talking about everything that this guy is doing this in the 1920s and just how ahead of the curve he is in so many ways. Yeah, we, we were just talking to each other. I mean, for a pre-war writer to have all these things remind you of current, you know, modern things. And you think, oh, this is a little bit like this horror movie or a little bit like this book. And it all came this out. Is a, this is, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the, the sort of change that happened in American crime fiction in the, the 40s and 50s with like Raymond Chandler and Patricia Highsmith and the, the more psychologically oriented crime fiction. It really feels like it's amazing that he's doing that 20 years before then. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. It's such a shift from the, the sort of uh, Hercule Poirot uh, Agatha Christie uh, uh, sort of style uh, G.K. Chesterton type writers that precede pre-war, right? Mm-hmm. Pre-war American writers. And then there's a big shift to like the Highsmith types, the very sort of psychologically piercing. And Rambo is ahead of them. He's doing what they do, but taking it further and doing it 20 years ahead of time, 15 years ahead of time. So it's just crazy to think about him. When you read these stories, they're, they're, so, they're just so ahead of the curve. Like you say, they're obviously influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. That's unquestionable. But they're also, um, they just feel like if he was an American, he would have been doing it in like 1952. You know, he would have been right in that Jim Thompson era is when these these stories would have been written. Like they just couldn't have come before then in America. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. And very specifically, not Japanese, these stories. That's the other thing. Yeah. Like I said, when the other Japanese writers were taking uh, influences from the West, that was a lot more considered literary and not genre based at all. That's what Rampo was about. And also he was about these really straight i mean this weird fiction strange fiction was not a phrase at the time he pretty much you know founded that as far as i can tell i mean you might you know point to lovecraft or people like that but i think in terms of his thrillers and his horror stories and the ones that are specifically ero goro nonsenso they are just it's crazy to think that these are written in the 20s and not you know years later when this kind of thing was popular was made popular yeah it feels like it feels like uh, and it's funny too because you know there's it feels like oh this is an incredible precursor and influence on film noir on patricia highsmith on that kind of on on donald henderson right but there's no way 
there's just no way that any of these things, that he was in any way an influence there. So little of his work has been translated into English even now. And especially a lot of his most uh, popular stories. Later in his career, he, he settled in. He basically wrote boys' detective novels, uh, like basically like Hardy Boys type stuff. And that's what, that's what he's um, like beloved for to this day in Japan. Um, but it's just like he just it's weird that this anomaly happened he's one of like the most anomalous writers in literature history and so from so many different angles and so he's really exciting and really fun to talk about it's just like he's like his career is like something out of uh, you know a lovecraft story some alternate dimensional rift that tears open and like these stories slurp out of it you know what i mean absolutely and while he has no real peer i think in the world i have to ask you chris what aperitif did you pick before we start talking about these stories oh yes on our on our pulp fictions podcast we always pick an aperitif pairing and a dessert pairing uh after our main meal of the uh, of the of the subject of the episode and for this my aperitif pairing i picked um <laughs> it's it's funny now that I'm going to say it. Crime and Punishment, the Dostoevsky book. You should read Crime and Punishment, um, which uh, it's a big influence on one of the stories we're not talking about, uh, the, the psychological test, uh, which even references Crime and Punishment. But Crime and Punishment really, it's written in like 1866, 1867. Uh, it was a... a published in installments, um, like in a, in a newspaper or literary journal, I guess. And it's really one of the most important uh, works of crime fiction. I think as much as Edgar Allan Poe created the detective genre, that crime and punishment is also a huge influence. And if you've never read it, you might be surprised to find how many of the tropes of crime fiction exist there, you know, and how much of them are, are created by Dostoevsky right at the beginning. And in particular, a lot of the Rampo stories have a similar sort of feel to them where they're very concerned about the mental state of a criminal, you know, about the, the sort of uh, moral uh, depravity of the main character of Rostolnikov, how the, the moral depravity of the characters are one of Ram Poe's big concerns. And again, predating the, uh, almost any other crime novelist I can think of, he's really ahead of the curve with how precise and perceptive he is about criminal psychology in his books and really trying to be authentic about you know, the sort of pettiness and weirdness of murder, of how depravity manifests itself and how strange people are inside their heads. And there's a ton of that in Crime and Punishment. Also combined with, and then the second half of Crime and Punishment is there's like a sort of Sphinx-like detective who's got a hunch, who's sort of playing a few games with our, you know, with our protagonist criminal who doesn't realize that the, the cop is on to him you know, kind of thing, uh, and and has these sort of circuitous interrogations where he's being set up, you know, and sort of maneuvered around. Um, it just resembles a lot of like 
shows like Law and Order and shit on some very basic level. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if you read that, that's one of the only books that feels like a real precursor to what Rampo is doing in some way. And again, I, I've never heard that he was a big Dostoevsky alkalite, but it being one of the most famous and towering novels of all time, it's probably fair to say he was familiar with it. Um, yeah, and also obviously huge in Japan. I mean, even Kurosawa did an adaptation of The Idiot. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That it's, there's, there's a lot of Japanese adaptations of Dostoevsky stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the biggest director even did one. I would, uh, yeah. I always think about the part in Major League where Wesley Snipes is looking for something to read on the bus. Yeah. And uh, he finds Crime and Punishment and says, is, it, is that a detective book? And the guy's, you know, nods and so he takes it. It's like, seems like a funny joke, but when people, you know, think about, you know, the literary importance of the, the novel, they don't really think it really is a pretty straightforward detective book in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, with all the solipsism and, you know, the philosophy and the existentialism, you got like real, just, you know, putting the Columbo, right? Finding like the holes in yeah. the case and then putting the guy away, send him to Siberia. It's, it's so similar to the um, K Days Fair. That's the one I always think mm -hmm. of when I reread Crime and Punishment, the Clouseau film. It's like, this is so similar to that. And I don't think Clouseau was thinking of that at all. I just read it. And it's not that it's that similar. It's just like the first half is about these sort of like depraved people getting in trouble. And then the second half is about like, the sort of lanky detective poking around. Who's yeah. always supporting to the criminal, with the criminal being the main character, you know, yeah. where we, we know the crime, we witness the crime in the, in the book, and then it's, you know, is he going to go down for it? It's the second half of it. Yeah, and the nice thing about Rampo is that he doesn't have a ridiculous epilogue in his story in which the pure godly love of a virginal 15-year-old blonde is <laughs> our hero. God can be found in blonde virgins. <laughs> he didn't have the religious problem that Dostoevsky had. He stands outside the fence and now he's going to heaven, if I'm understanding shit correctly. <laughs> <laughs> they do things different in Russia. <laughs> That's uh, a great choice. It's a great choice. Johnny Cribs, what is what is your aperitif? I chose the story uh, Axolotl by uh, Julio Cortazar, uh, the brilliant uh, European-born Argentine writer who probably most people know for writing the story that inspired uh, Antonioni's Blow Up. Um, it's a story about, it's a very short story. I mean, it's not much to talk about, but it's about a, a guy who goes to the zoo and sees a tank full of uh, axolotls, the, right? The larval salamander, the walk, the walking fish, yeah. and becomes obsessed with them and keeps going back to the zoo to to look at them and can't get them out of his mind until he eventually transforms into one. That's pretty yeah. much that's pretty much the whole story. Um, but beyond uh, uh, Cortazar being like Rampo, one of my very favorite short story writers. He's so good. I haven't read that one. Yeah, no, he's phenomenal. Um, it's, this story in particular shares the theme of monomania, you know, which is huge in Rampo. This, his character's obsession with a single idea that they just can't get away yeah. from. And one that we're, in particular that we're going to talk about, you know, um, specifically wanting to become that thing or, or to be that thing. It comes up in all of his stories. And so that's sort of a 
similarity. I should mention too, just as a coincidence, I was watching the Netflix uh, show Brain Games with my daughters today. They're big fans of it. It's a good show. And uh, they were doing an episode where they were showing various animals saying, are these animals real or are they made up? Are they fictional? And they just brought up a picture of an axolotl. And I immediately was like, that's real. That's an axolotl. I know that. <laughs> I just read a story about it, in fact. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, that, is a, that is a great pick. Cortazar is great. I first came across him because um, he, Godard, ripped off his book, the, or not his book, his story, The Southern Thruway and Weekend. And I had heard, like, he totally stole that shit, that great... Uh, sequence and weekend from this writer I had never heard of when I was a kid. And that's how I came to his work. Um, yeah. Godard, sort of like many of my heroes, taking from short stories and then seeming to forget about it and deny it. <laughs> All great filmmakers do it. It's for sure. It's true. <laughs> um, so, Chris, are we ready to talk? What is your first pick? What's your first well, Rampo our, story? Our picks together, because we yeah. went through. It's not three and three. It's just five films. And there's sort of an arc to what we're going through on this two and the order we're going through on them. And so the first one that we're going to talk about is Stalker in the Attic. And this is a story that's about a guy who nothing in life excites him. He's like perpetually bored. He's a bit of a weirdo. He gets like a lot of Ranpo characters uh, an inheritance or an amount of money that allows him to live uh, beyond his needs, you know? And nothing excites him, nothing interests him. Um, he gets sort of obsessed with the idea of crime for a little bit and does some petty crimes and then forgets about it. And then he moves into a new apartment building that's a little bit of a Western style apartment building. And he finds, he starts sleeping in his closet Right, He sets up his bedroll in his closet because he on a shelf because he's lazy. So rather than put the bedroll away properly, he stuffs it in there, and then he eventually stops getting it out. He starts sleeping in his closet, and he notices that one of the ceiling boards is loose because uh, an electrician or whoever, some maintenance person needed to be have access to the attic. And he goes up into the attic and he realizes that he can walk around above everybody's apartment and see down into them and watch them live their lives. So he starts going around to do this. And one of his neighbors, who he's ostensibly friends with, he realizes that, A, he hates this guy, just sort of has this realization about, man, I hate him. I could murder him by dripping poison down his throat through this little knot hole in the floor. There's a little knot hole in one of the boards and I can pull it out like a, a plug or a, you know, a cork on a bottle of wine and put it back in. And his mouth lines up just perfectly with the knot hole and I can drip this morphine down in and kill him. Right? And it's a story about going through uh, the process of doing this, the, the sort of problems he runs into, the, the process of it. And then there's this other detective, young detective that he's friends with, who's actually the star of a bunch of uh, Rampo stories. Uh, Akeji, uh, Kagoro Akeji, right? That's the character's name? Dr. Kagoro Akeji, yep. Uh, and he sort of solves the crime at the end, but very peripheral to this story. Um, but what the story's really about is about this guy's 
obsession. It's about his psychological state. It's about seeing this world and this apartment building completely through this guy's eyes. And it's fairly, very startling from a book of this era, from when it was written to be so wholly in the mind of like a depraved individual. Um, and it's really good. It's to me, it's the quintessential. Well, that's not true. One of the other ones we're talking about is the quintessential uh, um, Rampo story. But this one really, it's its up there. It doesn't get more Rampo than this. How yeah. about that? Yeah, it's a lo- one of his longer stories too. It's uh, not quite novella length, but it's more sizable than a lot of his, uh, about twice as long, I would say, as a lot of his stories. So you really get to know this guy really well. Uh, it's important too to note that before any of this happens, before he gets to the main story of him moving into the apartment and finding the um, the attic and everything, uh, he's friends with Akechi, their acquaintances. Yes. Uh, so while he is bored and has lost all passion for life, he becomes interested in crime because Akechi tells him about all of these various cases that he's on. Yeah. Uh, all these well, murders. That, well, that he's read about. And they're all, that's a great section of the story. Is uh-huh. that where you're going with this? That well, that's. All, they're all real cases. So oh, that they're all real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That Akechi is a. Uh, 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 Name Akechi. drops a bunch of famous Japanese crimes from the beginning of the century. The, the, yeah. They're not even Japanese. They're like worldwide. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was what was fun, too, is I recognized one of them. I forget which one. And I was like, wait, are these all based on real things? So going and like researching all of them was a fun thing to do right after I read this story again. Yeah. No, there are all a lot of weird real life crimes. So it's kind of cool. Um, but I, what I was going to say specifically was it's interesting that this is how the story starts with him becoming interested in the idea of murder by talking to this detective. I mean, besides uh, Rampo making a clear parallel between the criminal and the crime hunter, you know, that the, the idea of the thrill being the same, whether you're trying to commit a crime or trying to catch a criminal, uh, it's almost like a catchy telling him about all these crimes is what inspires uh the, the the killer Saboro is his name. Yeah. To to his act, you know. So it's when you read the end when Akechi comes back and almost effortlessly and almost seemingly without amusement solves the crime. Yeah. It's it almost feels like Akechi might be bored. He might be yes. a bored person too. He might have set this guy up to commit murder. He might have immediately recognized him as a as a psychopath and thought if I get this guy interested in killing someone, he eventually will do it. And I'm going to swoop in and catch him. Yes. It's also, this this story has the ending that a lot of Rampo stories have of a very glib ending that's unsettling for how glib the resolution is, right? <laughs> that a lot of his stories have, Akechi comes in and he's like, I tricked you with that. I, you know, I just pulled that button off your shirt. I didn't find it up in the attic in the crime scene. Ha ha ha. I'm sure you're going to go turn yourself in. And then he like leaves and it's this very unsettling feeling of like, all's well that ends well, just to write, right, everybody, right? <laughs> it's unsettling too, because again, if you're like so kind of unsettling. buying into this yeah. idea of a catchy, you know, maybe even setting him up that almost that they exist on a different plane than the victim and this, this, this student who's, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a noxious loser who doesn't, recognize the things around him the way these guys do that these guys are operating on a whole different plane that they're actually 
looking down at people, you know, sort of as their little experiments. And obviously when Sapporo goes up into the attic and has this access to all these different people's apartments and sees their personal lives, he gets this obvious, this godlike thrill of being able to, to see people. And something that we'll see a lot in Rampo is this idea of making yourself invisible, that yeah. you, know, you exist outside of humanity and that you basically have this superpower, this access to everyone's lives that they don't know and they don't know you're there. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, speaking of real life crimes, uh, I just want to say one more thing. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Akechi, um, resembling Saboro is that you've just spent this whole story inside of, um, Saboro's like messed up mind and horrible thoughts. Right. So when at the end, um, a is a little bit, uh, strange, you're left with the sense of like, oh, there's all of this crazy stuff happening inside of people that we don't know about. All of the things that, that Saboro witnesses, right? Like the one neighbor, he says that like, totally like brutalizes a, a sex worker, you know, like that kind of thing. All of this sort of strange uh, internal things that we're seeing that people keep hidden. You go, oh, what does a catchy have hidden here? Like he's not you know, going to take this guy down. He doesn't seem to care about justice or the crime being resolved. He doesn't slap him in cuffs with indignity, sort of like, here's your button back, jackass, and leaves, you know? And so it's a very, the story is, has set you up to ask the question of like, what is actually inside of people? And the mm-hmm. ostensible hero acts glib in a way that makes you go like, God, I don't feel better at all. Anyway. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what sets it apart, too, from the kind of detective story, the Sherlock Holmes story, where, you know, he gets his man at the end and everyone's happy and it's, you know, back to life as we know it. Everything's normal again. Yeah. Um, again, it resembles Edgar Allan Poe in that way. That's yeah. a little bit about the, the, the broken mind more of than course. a clever resolution. But Rampo always sets up screens, too, with his stories, where it's almost like he wants to distance himself from people like this in a way obviously this story and the same with the psychological test uh they're written in the third person you know even though we we spend the entire story with saboro and get a good insight into his psychology and what's going on rampo's never willing to really get completely into that mind or into a catchy's mind and it's fascinating the way he deals with it it's fascinating it's on the outside looking in and this one there's sort of no question about what's happening with Saboro, which is what's fascinating about it, is there's no question about uh, whether this is true or not. It's not an unreliable third-person narrator. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it still feels a little unsettled. Without a doubt. So speaking of real-life crimes, one of my all-time favorite true crimes is the, the Denver Spider-Man, right? Yes. Um, I thought about this so much in you when reading this again. Yes, absolutely. Theodore Coney's... Um, what happened was he basically... Well, explain it from the perspective of the people living there first. Okay, so, all right, so, all right, so there's this guy, lived in Denver, has a house, um, living with his wife, and... It's a penthouse in the top of an apartment building. Yes, yes, yes. So they're living in this house, and what happens is they find his dead body. His wife has been away for a while. They find his dead body in this penthouse... All the doors are locked and there is no uh, evidence of a break-in. It seems like a complete locked door mystery. Yeah. 
And then several months later, they discover that this guy, Theodore Konings, has snuck into this penthouse and been living inside of a, a narrow attic cubby hole, which he accessed through a super thin trap door that he's managed to contort his body to get into because police even noted the trap door when they were investigating the murder, but they figured nobody could fit up there. Yeah. Uh, so what it, it turns out was that Coney's was actually living in this penthouse for a long time. He had broken into it. And while his victim lived there, he would, you know, come down from the attic and steal food. Yes, they had, they had actually gone to the police and reported, like... They would hear noises. And, and that yeah. stuff is missing from our apartment. Like, little insignificant stuff. We think something, somebody's breaking in to this place. Yeah, and by the time he got caught, I mean, these people had moved, the, the family of the victim had moved out, and it was a completely empty apartment. And it was only by happenstance that somebody finally caught him. So, uh, of course, I thought about this a lot, reading Stalker in the Attic, uh, and, and again, this stalker in the attic predates the Denver Spider-Man by uh, two decades. Um, but it's funny because Rampo wrote a novel called The Spider-Man. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it's about, but it's just a funny coincidence. Yeah, the, the, I love the Denver Spider-Man story. It's a, uh, something I wanted to turn to a movie somehow until I saw uh, Gila Morales' excellent The Uninvited Guest, which basically did everything that I wanted to do in a Denver Spider-Man movie. I'm probably getting a bunch of details wrong with the Denver Spider-Man. God, that's a creepy-ass story, isn't it? Yes, say. but very, uh, very uh, easy to be reminded of. Um, of Stalker in the Attic, without question. And yeah. also just the idea, Stalker in the Attic is a, is a profoundly creepy book to read, just the idea that people might be watching you at any yes. given time, you know? Someone like, might be watching, someone might be living with you, and you don't even realize it. All of the stories we're talking about today are either from 1925 or 1926, I should say, uh, is the era. I should just mention that right now. We stuck to stories all from, from the, the early era of his career and uh, didn't pick any of the later stories, which are, are harder to, to find. And a lot, like I said, a lot of his work just hasn't been translated in English, which is crazy for a writer of that stature. You know, it's just, it's crazy to think uh, about what you can't read by the great Rampo. So what is our next one? The next one is one, an excellent story, one I love. It's called The Red Chamber. And... Similar to Stalker in the Attic, it deals with a man who is a murderer and describes himself specifically as a man who became a murderer due to his boredom in life. He says that he is neither destitute nor rich and that he decides he might find amusement in tracking down criminals because he doesn't have the money to afford luxury to distract him from the banality of life. And uh, he's not struggling constantly. He has too much time on his hands. So... It's interesting, too, because he did considers he says he considers becoming a detective, which, uh, again, you know, brings up that parallel saying, you know, he might have found the same satisfaction in solving crimes as he does committing them. But uh, this guy is telling the story of his murders, and he's telling it to a club uh, called the Red Chamber Club. They're a group of uh, people who get together, uh, rich people who get together and tell each other horror stories in this darkened room. Uh, sort of a, a familiar setup, I guess, to these kind of stories. But he, as the new member, he's giving his first story, and the story is that he introduces himself by saying, I've killed 100 people, I've killed 99 people, and they'll never catch me. And he goes on to explain that the way he kills people is by complete happenstance. He never actually murders somebody, but what he'll do 
is he will tell a blind per- you know make a blind person believe that he's you know safe when he walks and then he walks into a pit or he'll um distract someone so that they're hit by a car things like that he realizes and specifically like say to a person like an old woman look out for that car knowing that it'll cause her to freeze and that if he doesn't say anything she'll just keep walking across the street he's developed a whole philosophy that he calls his festival of crime in his boredom he's basically managed to like pick up the way the world works he's been able to step back and see the, the way the world functions and realizes that it's such a dangerous world just little things that you do affect other people and can cause their deaths and that's basically what he's saying to everyone and again rampo is doing this with a screen he's having it be a story that's being told to other people so even though it's a first person story you know it's something that other people are hearing and it's unreliable, similar to uh, the traveler with the pasted rag picture, another great story that he wrote, sort of this person telling a story to the main characters who are not part of the story at all. They're completely removed from the story. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's a really great idea because here you have obviously a person who's not going out. He's not a serial murderer. He's not actually going out and slashing women and he has no motivation. He's killing people he likes. He convinces a friend to jump into the water where he knows there's going to be uh, a rock underneath that will crush his head and things like that. He just gets this glee out of setting these things up and making them happen and then getting away with it because there's no way anyone could tie him to purposely making these people die. And uh, there's, a great, there's a great quote in the story where he says, how generous the creator was, I told myself blasphemously to have provided so much opportunity for the perpetration of crimes which could not be detected. Yeah. And it's and it's good too. I feel like with all these stories, we're going to talk about them in depth. So this is all spoilers. I feel like I want to talk about all of these stories enough that we have to do spoilers on all of them, and a lot of them have twist endings, right? Yeah. With the so, with short stories, you really kind of got to. Yeah. So yeah, it's especially with with these that that kind of read Stalker in the Attic, read Red Chamber, read the other ones we're going to talk about, read any Itagawa, and then come back and listen. Um, and if you're not sold, you know, jump around in this episode, hear about it, and then find some others, however you want to do it. But you sort of can't discuss him without discussing the endings because so much of his thematic punch is in the endings of these stories, right? Where this story ends with, he is going to uh, have his hundredth murder committed right and sort of through happenstance where he calls in the waitress who's like a young woman and he pretends to shoot her he fires off this gun and a blank goes off and everyone thinks oh no he's just killed this woman that's his hundredth murder and then he starts laughing he's like no i didn't kill her right there was it was a blanks and he gives the waitress the gun and he's like it's full of blanks now you know ha 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 you know you can shoot me have a give it a try and then she shoots him and he really dies because it's really a bullet in there after the blank, right? But then on top of it, that's a joke, right? Where he's not actually shot, the waitress was in on it with him. He's like, this is my assistant. And uh, he kind of gets up and uh, says to all of them, you know, he's sort of like chiding the group for believing in these stories. He says, how can you believe that I've killed 99 people? You guys are crazy. Have a good night, everybody. And he leaves and it's a very traditional like, glib unsettling ending you know because all of the stories he's told 
throughout the, the short story, everything he said, all the murders he's committed, you're not left with the sense of um, that was fake and his glibness at the end is true. You know yeah. what I mean? You're not left with the sense of a resolution that you've gotten at the truth in any way. And like you say, there's a screen there. There's a distancing device where we're hearing this guy's version of whatever it is and getting inside of it. It's so detailed. The psychology of it's so detailed. The plans are so detailed that it's almost doesn't matter whether the murders are real or not, that just that he could have these thoughts is what's upsetting. You know yeah. what I mean? That's that these stories can be told. It works great on two levels. The one you, you, you mentioned that's unsettling and ambiguous, but also that he flips on the light, you know, that's been this darkened room with this very moody setting that they've set up to tell these stories, these morbid stories that they love to hear and tell each other. He snaps on the light and says, ha ha, that was just kidding. And the entire time too, when he's describing his methods and, and why he's doing these horrible things, he says, it's the boredom, and he, tell, and he tells the other members, well, you gentlemen know what it's like. That's why you formed this club, because you're bored. Yeah. You're a bunch of bored, rich people, and you like to get together and hear horrible, grotesque, disgusting stories. And so he shamed this group with yeah. this, you know, by, by revealing that it's all been, you know, a fraud, but making them believe that he's actually been out there doing that and that it comes from the same place that they want to hear these stories, that they engage in these horrible stories. It's kind of a Haneke sort of thing where, you know, he's, he's making a comment, Rampo's making a comment here specifically about our fascination with these things versus, you know, the actual complicity, uh, being complicit in like actual yeah. horrible acts and horrible crimes so there's a lot to unpack with that yeah and it also has again to compare it to stalker in the attic it has with uh uh a that um he's like i'm the hero and the good guy good night everybody and you're like i don't feel that way necessarily about this person you yeah. don't necessarily feel like what a hero you feel like that guy's intensely strange and i wonder what the truth is you know, like what could the truth possibly be? You know, is it, that can't be not real, can it? You know, and it, it's it's a very unsettling sense that you're left at the end of are we supposed to believe him, right? And it's ambiguous. The only reason to believe him is because he said I was lying before. There's no evidence offered by Rampo of why the story should be believable or not believable. Yeah, and oh, plus he's already okay. given this one false ending where, you know... Yeah, and he's, he's also been telling lies the whole time. Yeah, and he's fake murdered this woman. Yeah. And then had him her fake murder him. Yeah. And so reality completely collapses for this, this room full of people at that point. Yeah, it's been all deception. So when you get to the truth at the end, to the happy ending, you know, it's intentionally glib, the happy ending. It's intentionally unsatisfying. Yeah, and like Stalker in the Attic, where, you know, it's this uneasy feeling that you get of people watching you or people, you know, planning your murder for no reason. And again, yeah. having no motive beyond their own dissatisfaction with day-to-day -day life. Um, this and idea that this guy exists, just, he's just out there looking for ways to kill people, to cause their deaths. And specifically the way that he comes about this is that he, runs upon, he comes upon a car accident and the guy says, I got to get this guy to a doctor. Tell me where, which doctor to go to. 
And so he tells him which doctor to go to, and then afterwards realizes, I should have sent him to the much better doctor. And yeah. the fact that the guy dies, he realizes subconsciously, I wanted him to die. I wanted yeah. to send him to I the sent classes. him to the quack yeah. instead of the real doctor, and I did that on purpose. That's a very scary idea that, you know, someone out there is so removed from the rest of the world and understands just the picture of society so perfectly that he's made his grand scheme to manipulate these events into these horrible events into happening. It's a very unsettling idea. Yes. And it, um, it reminds me a lot, the way he speaks and talks about it in both stalker in the attic. And then this character, it reminds me a lot of listening to, um, real seal serial killers talk that there's yeah. something about the way like Edmund Kemper describes his crimes, right? As sort of being like half planned idiocies, you know, just like I was an old bumble butt. You know what I mean? That it's um it's very real. And again, it's shockingly real, especially for its era, that it's even it takes decades for American crime to start shedding the, the sort of inauthenticity of, of the Agatha Christie type criminal masterminds and killers. You know, that the criminals are very unrealistically written uh, until there's like an actual movement to try and make criminology and psychology more realistic in crime fiction. And he's, he's there already. He's there already, you know, yeah. and it's not like poetic and overblown like Edgar Allan Poe, which, you know, which is still phantasmagorical. You know, the criminals in that are like hallucinating. They're seeing spirits. There's like a, a mythological poetic quality, even as it's realistic and very good in Poe, that is not in Rand Poe, that they feel like when you hear actual, if you're well-versed in true crime, they just have that feel of like listening to like um, an, uh, a Ted Bundy type talk about things. You yeah, know, it just absolutely. has that feel of like, you know, it was, just, it was just as easy as like changing a tire kind of attitude. And yeah. I'm not sure what drove me towards it. And I didn't necessarily get pleasure from it. It wasn't as simple as that. It was just like I was obsessed with it, mm -hmm. you know? Of course, yeah. No, he's another one of Rampo's characters who just has that obsession with destroying people in this case, you know. Yeah. Um, what, one, one moment in the story... And that, also feeling like you're cheating reality in some way, that you're cheating the system, that you're smarter than the system, which is yeah. another real-life serial killer quality. Yeah, of course. Um, just the sheer uh, pride in operating outside of moral boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, one moment from the story that I think about a lot is one of the um, murders that he commits where he says it's an incident with a tightrope walker, female tightrope walker. And what he says he does is he poses, he, he does a posture so strange and obscene that I shame, I'm ashamed to describe it here in order to distract her. And she fell and died because she didn't operate with a net. Yeah. And I just think of like, uh, what could he have done? Yeah. <laughs> what undescribable thing could he have done to distract a professional tight walker and forced her to fall? Like that's something that gives me the chills. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. There's there's a lot. This story is like a nicely um it's upsetting too because it's not 
written to be chilling. It's not, these aren't gothic stories at all. You know, like they aren't like Poe or Lovecraft. These are what's fascinating about them is that how closely they hew to the mundane. So you're not picturing something crazy from him in that obscene posture. You're picturing like what could a real person do to like distract somebody, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which makes it, then you can picture like every, you know, like mentally ill lunatic you accidentally sat by on the train earlier today. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. Um, Chris, what's the next story we got? So this, is, this we are going to talk about the human chair. And I was going to say Stalker in the Attic is like the, the quintessential Rand Post story, but it's actually the human chair. This is, I also feel like if he's known in the U.S., like if you've heard of him, you've probably either read The Black Lizard, which the Black Lizard uh, uh, crime publishing imprint is named after, or The Human Chair. But I feel like this is his big one. Definitely. And, it's definitely his most anthologized story. First time I ever heard of him was because Harlan Ellison had chosen it as his favorite horror story of all time in a collection. And, oh man, and it's great. And it is super duper weird. Um, it's almost impossibly weird. It's the definition of erotic, grotesque nonsense in some ways. There is, in it's, there's a story, there's a woman and she writes for like a woman's magazine. She's like a successful, popular writer for a woman's magazine. And she really receives a letter in the mail. That's like a manuscript uh, from a guy who's like, I didn't really know who else to tell this, but I have a strange story I want to tell you. Um, and I'm a master chair maker. One of the things I've always done is taken a lot of pride in this. And I became in demand for my ability to make like uh, interesting Western style chairs. And um, I got a special order for this chair that was supposed to be massive and supposed to be in a study somewhere, or he wasn't even sure where it was supposed to go. He was supposed to go to a hotel, but he didn't really know what was going to be going on with it. And I realized it was so big that I could secretly create a compartment in it that I could fit inside this chair. And that if anybody sat inside this chair, they would have to sit in my lap. And I had it set up with a place to use the bathroom and have food for myself in there. And I can basically live inside this chair. And I decided when it was getting shipped out, I would just get inside of it and go. And like the movers like comment on like, man, this is a fucking heavy chair. And he gets put in a hotel lobby. And so it's him talking about all of the various different kinds of people that come and sit in his lap, essentially, and how erotic and thrilling and intense it is to him to feel them like right on his thighs and to be right close to them. And they just have no awareness of it whatsoever that people are just coming and sitting on him. And then he sneaks out at night and gets food and goes back in the chair. Again, another Spider-Man of Denver type of situation here. And eventually the chair gets sold to a few other places or not to a few other places. I think just one more, it ends up in the uh, like library room of a private residence and the private residence that it ended up in, it's a woman writer who I feel this intense connection to living inside the chair 
that just every day she comes in to write. She's a successful writer for a woman's magazine and she sits in my lap and she's always in my lap day in and day out. And I just couldn't wait any longer. I couldn't stand it anymore. I decided to tell her about it. And hey, it's you. That's why I'm writing you this letter. I'm inside your chair right now and I've always been in there. Like, what do you think of that? It's kind of cool, right? You know, sort of thing. I, the tone is a little bit like I just had to express like my my uh, intense connection to you. I'm clearly your favorite thing in this house. Me, the chair. And as she's about to freak out, and she even says like, "What's going to be inside this chair if I look in this chair?" Like, imagine like he's going to be in there with like a bucket of shit. Like that's crazy. You know, like this is awful. Right as she's about to freak out and try to decide to do a telegram arrives. And the telegram is another letter from the same author, same handwriting, saying, hey, I'm just kidding about being in that chair. Uh, you know, I want to be a, a mystery writer and like an author. And that was my manuscript to see like, hey, you think I could be a writer or not? Because you're a popular writer for a magazine. What do you think about that? <laughs> and it's another one of his glib endings that's like, I don't know that I believe this second telegram whatsoever. You yeah. Know? And it's, it's funny because it feels immediately like a sellout, you know, like it's, you know, just this way of, you know, making it a happy, Hey, it's all right, folks. It's okay. I, uh, I always kind of suspected that because in the um, film, the mystery of Rampo, they kind of make a case for like him being censored when he was writing. I yeah. don't know if there's any actual bio biographical evidence of this at all. Um, no, it doesn't. To me, it's a, perfectly in keeping with the ending of the red chamber no i'm saying i agree with you i but after my wife read the story she was like what a sellout at the end like I, i'm totally i love that story until the end um but yeah exactly once you know his other stories when you're you know divorced from this as being just this one solo thing you realize exactly what you're saying that what do we what does this woman believe does she believe that this is all a hoax does she believe that there's actually this guy in her chair who after spying on her reading this story and seeing her freak out has decided to bail out and, you know leave the house and write this you know note we don't you know this ambiguity yeah. is does she want to check happening. yeah does she want to check or just to be sure or does she want to go back to sitting in the chair and pretending that does she want to find a crazy guy what's better to find the crazy guy in the chair you know, or to just live with the idea that maybe there's a crazy guy in the chair. And if I don't check, it'll never be confirmed. You yes. Know? And yes that, it's, this really is the quintessential Rambo for so many reasons. The, what, the idea of, you know, invisibility, that there's something, somebody out there who has achieved, you know, has found a way to be completely non-existent when they're right next to you, obviously yeah. is, is part of it. And this guy's one obsession is also part of it. This is his obsession with transformation into something else to be a part of the furniture. Yeah. Tons of his stories. I'm just going to name drop a bunch of the stories we're not going to be talking about just to make uh, a few other parallels. The, the caterpillar, which is about yes. a, oh my a, God. a veteran who, you know, has no arms and no legs and can't speak uh, or hear. And his, his wife who's taking care of him and, you know, thinks of him as a caterpillar, like a, like a literally he's just sitting there. He's like this big slug of a man. So making that connection, then um, the daydream where a man has killed his wife and turned her into like a wax figure, like hidden her in the, inside of a wax figure that nobody recognizes is this dead body. They think it's just this thing in front of his store. 
And again, oh. these are like, they predate Johnny Got His Gun. They predate Bucket of Blood. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or even the twins, which is kind of a more straightforward story of uh, a twin brother murdering uh, his brother and taking over his life is a way of transforming into being something you're not, you know, into changing who you are against the laws of nature. Yeah. Sort of the perverse idea of that. Yeah. And changing into like transforming into yourself too. Mm-hmm. in that one, there's a weird idea where a lot of these is people are trying to change into who they were meant to who or what they were meant to be. Yeah, the, a, a direct quote actually from an essay that Rampo wrote called The Desire for Transformation, which talks about the origins of the human chair. He says, the desire for transformation is also linked to the desire to conceal oneself. Yeah. It pretty much wraps up his main idea with these characters. And it's also, it should be noted, he was like an interesting scholar. And he, um, in particular, he was one of the first scholars to study the history of like abnormal sexuality in, uh, in Japan and had a huge collection of literature, both of fiction and writing on homosexuality and was like um, a major early research or researcher on that account. Just again, another way in which he's so far ahead of the curve, you know, um, yeah. and just a fascinating uh, person in that way, a fascinating uh, character. The only kind of person who could have written a story about a man getting sexual pleasure from being sat on in the twenties, you know? Yeah. Is somebody who studied abnormal sexuality. Exactly. And, um, and sort of he's delineate, he's very interesting. He delineates to between sort of like destructive, what makes a paraphilia destructive and how paraphilia can be healthy, you know, and how, um, just the morality of it in a way that's that's interesting because he's incredibly not judgmental about homosexuality he separates it very clearly from other paraphilias and Mm -hmm. sort of sees it as like no that's actually a a natural thing like look at all this literature backing this up like this is not a a shameful deviant behavior you know shameful deviant behavior is the human chair guy let me (laughs) tell you about the human chair guy real quick you know yeah the dude who's like a jerking off to murder that's the guy you gotta worry about not the gay guy (laughs) yeah and more to the point of the guy finding himself you know through this transformation i mean i I should say i I love it because i love a good horror story where the artist really becomes his art you know he's this master chair maker who designs what he considers the perfect chair and his initial idea of putting himself in the chair is really that he doesn't want to be separated from it he's so proud of it he wants to just go where the chair goes and be part of the chair, be part of this art. Uh, And I I read so many incorrect synopsis of this story where people say he's obsessed with a woman. So he creates a chair and then climbs in so he could be near her. That's wrong. He, he initially gets into the chair. He convinces himself. It's like a goof, right? That he's just going to do it for fun. It was a goof. For a while he decides he's going to, you know, sneak out and rob this hotel. Yeah. and you know, be delighted that the police are running back and forth. Yeah, by another, the chair, guy, not another character the chair. like Red Chamber and Stalker in the Attic, a character who suddenly realizes crime is really exciting to him too. Yeah, yeah, and it's not until he starts getting set on by beautiful women. The Russian ballerina. That's the like ballerina the best, the the best se- sequence in this is him talking about her. Yeah, uh, is when he starts to realize that 
he's enjoying being a chair. <laughs> yeah, and that it's probably better than being a chair maker. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good story. Exactly. And, and again, it's the glib ending, and it is a glib ending. The ending is very glib, and I, and I understand why Jordy found it off-putting, you know? Because mm -hmm. like anybody, the first time you read this, you're like, what the fuck was that ending? But I don't think it's censorship. I think the glibness is intended as a layer of being unsettling. Without um, a doubt. What is the truth here? You know, yeah. it's like in Red Chamber, what is the truth? And is it better? Do you want these stories confirmed? You know, in exploring them to find out the truth, you are risking discovering that something truly horrible is real. And I think that's the tension of it, is it leaves characters in a state where they still have the option of getting to the bottom of this stuff and of confirming if the stories are true or not. But do you actually want to do that? Or would you rather just go back to your fucking life and like disband the red chamber and be like, red chamber's over, we're going back to being regular people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my chair, uh, don't want to know whether there's a person in there or not. I'm just going to take that letter to be real. And like Red, yeah, and like Red Chamber, this by by putting the screen there of it being a story, the idea that it's actually just yes. been fiction written by somebody, uh, kind of you know calls to question, you know, why do we enjoy it? What is it about these stories that you know gets us going? What is it that we find you know really intriguing about them? And it's and interesting the comfort of them being fictional as opposed to being something that's real and dangerous. Yes, and it's also every time I read the story. If you get, it's upsetting to be sitting in a chair. It's amazing how effective it is. There's a certain level on, because I first heard this story like described in the synopsis before I read it. And I was like, that sounds ridiculous. That does not sound scary at all. It sounds dumb. But then when you read it, you're like, God damn, I hope there's nobody in my chair. You yeah. Know? Like, well, it makes you aware, right? Because yeah. if we sit on chairs, we don't think about it most of the time, you know? It's yeah. just a utility that we use. The idea that like somebody's getting off because I'm sitting on them right yeah. now yeah. makes you more aware. You know, yes. these characters who these characters who, who are the paying attention to me that I haven't seen. Yeah, these these characters who are potential deviants and murderers, whether it's real or not, they know something we don't. They know something that the 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 narrators and the non characters of these stories don't. They're concealed in ways that and they see the world in ways that nobody else does. And they're watching people so closely, and those people don't know they're being watched. That's what it has in common with Stalker in the Attic, is just the idea of being observed so closely, you know, and you don't even know it. You're yeah. not even aware of it at all. Yeah, this is a phenomenal story. I'd say if you only ever read one Edgar Rampo, this is the one. I, yeah, I'd say you should read three. I say you should read this Stalker in the Attic and Psychological Test, and if yeah. you're into them at all, read the rest of them. <laughs> mm. Yeah. What's our, what's our next one on the docket, my friend? So the next one, I guess, is it fair to say it's a little bit more of a traditional kind of grotesque story or kind of a horror story? I have no idea. To me, this is like the weirdest one. Oh, it's, really? Huh. I don't know. It I guess because, and again... Like Japanese cinema in some way, or like it's like a Bergman story, actually. But go it on. is a little Bergman, mainly because it's oh, in a circus. Yeah, uh, but also, of course, and again, this is predating everything. It has more of an EC Comics kind of bent to it, like it could yeah. be adapted into a Tales from the Crypt episode. Again, Absolutely. it takes place in the circus, um, but it's a story of cruelty, 
it's a story of possibly revenge uh, from a little person. And it predates Todd Browning's Freaks by a good five years, I think. Yeah, uh, he's so fucking ahead of the curve. Every yeah. time you're like, it was probably influenced by this other thing. And then you look it up and you're like, no, it was goddamn years before that thing that I thought was it, it was influenced by. Yeah, and at the same time, it's like, he's just, like you say, he's just in, you know, in front of everybody because there's, I don't think there's any way Todd Browning knows this story in 1932, right? I... I I don't see how he could. I just don't see how he could. I don't see how he could either. Anyway, the story is called The Dancing Dwarf, 1927. Uh, and it deals I with... I 26. Uh, 26 or 27. So, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, late 20s. It concerns Rocco, who is described as a monster with the body of a 12-year-old and the face of a 30-year-old with wrinkles like spider legs across his face. It's a great description. Um, but it's sort of a bunch of carnies hanging out. And he's After, got a patchy beard, too. The description of his patchy beard really stuck with me. You can just yes, like, but, picture him perfectly. But it's set up, and again, we have, we're have we dealing with an unnamed narrator who has nothing to do with the story beyond uh, telling it. You know, Again, it's another screen between what the events and the, pe- the person telling the story. Um, Roku is this um, performer who is constantly ridiculed and harassed and taunted by the other circus performers just sort of as... Uh, wrote just sort of something that happens when they get together at night after their performances. Uh, in particular, Ohana, which I just I just watched Lilo and Stitch with my kids. It means family. It means nobody gets left behind. But in this case, it means uh, a beautiful ball tumbler who Roku is obviously infatuated with, who gets him to do things um, because of his infatuation. And a strong man who's a bully. So again, so much like Freaks, it's crazy. Um, It's the same sort of setup. But they they dump him into a a casket of sake. And he keeps Uh, saying, I don't want to drink. The setup is, it's after the the day is over at the circus. uh, And they're all hanging around. And they all start to decide that he's got to drink. And he's like, drinking is no good for me. I shouldn't drink. And they start it's no good with me, but so they, they get him drunk by dunking him into sake. Ohana sits on his head. They start throwing him around like a football. It's just this horrible humiliation that the narrator, it should be noted, does nothing to stop. Nobody does anything to stop this from happening. And it's also interesting because the narrator, it's not clear who he is. Not at all. Makes, he's he, not identified. Yes, and he, makes, he points out that he makes it clear that he's not part of the troupe, of the circus troupe but why he's hanging around with them backstage isn't clarified. Right, but as things begin escalating, uh, the, the, the really effective thing in this story is that the narrative gets more and more uncomfortable with the situation uh, without stepping in to, ending it, to end it. And even says that Roku smiled even when he should have been crying, you know? Yeah. Just, he's just watching this scene happen until finally uh, the performers demand that everyone shows their secret talents that they keep up their sleeve that they don't you know the really really gross stuff that they don't do in front of crowds and so they bring out the the beauty and the guillotine box that the magician performs and tell roku to perform it with ohana to put her inside of there and and give them a truly menacing performance and that's when things turn a little like i said a little ec comics a little revenge or do they because again we have like we're waiting for that false ending. We're waiting for that sort of red chamber ending where it turns out everyone was just in on it. Everyone was trying to get the narrator to believe this was happening. And he's not really sure if someone yeah. gets horribly mutilated or not. 
Yes, is does it, it's essentially, they do the woman in the box and he does a very convincing performance of cutting her head off in which she's screaming, essentially, oh no, we pushed him too far. He's really killing me. You people need to fucking help me, right? While everyone laughs and yeah, drinks. Yeah, and then it's revealed, nah, it was just a trick. Wasn't that great? But then a fire breaks out, <laughs> seemingly on purpose, seemingly like like he started the fire. And then the final image from the story is uh, the narrator sees on the crest of the hill in the moonlight him carrying something beside him about the size of a head. About the size of a head. Something that he is chewing on. Yes. (laughs) And it's in his hand. And it's such an EC Comics final image. The like, you can just see that, that drawing, that panel, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, this absolutely would have been a perfect adaptation for Tales from the Crypt. I'm not even kidding. Um, it's very similar to two or three episodes I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and again, that image, you know, that really horrible image of possibly this little person biting on a head in the moonlight with uh, black ooze dripping out of it. Yeah. It's more... A, a traditional horror and more grotesque than what you re- usually see in Rampo, which you yes. read in him. I guess and that's why is, I think of it more of as, as a traditional story. I was yeah. earlier, oh, but I, but I uh, when I read it too, the, the cruelty of it really reminds me of Sawdust and Tinsel. It really yeah, reminds yeah. me of that. And also I, I kept on being, I guess because it's Japan, of Emma Mira's first film, Stolen Desire, about the group of itinerant actors, where they sort of get into drunken troubles backstage you know it has that that same feeling of like backstage shenanigans and in i think that's still there i think you're right that it's definitely more weird and funny and mean in the way like tales from the crypt and dc comics are you know that vault of terror is uh but there's still but there's still those touchstones of of legitimate uh of legitimate artsy fartsiness to it too yeah, but... definitely has. Uh, there's something psychological about its edge and truthful about it. Um, that I that again, sawdust and tinsel, stolen desire. You know, a little bit, uh, a little bit of Fellini in there as well. Uh, maybe for the flamboyance and bombasticness of it. It definitely has that as well. Um, but as far as traditional horror, what I wanted to say also was that he doesn't do uh, yokai horror you know, that, that yes. is so associated with Japan from that era. Although Human Chair is like a yokai story come to life, there's that kind of yokai that turn themselves into household items like uh, umbrellas and shoes. Right, so. right. But, but, but not ghost stories, you no, know. No, exactly. Um, it's funny because another furniture-based horror story that he wrote, The Appearance of Oshi, which uh, is uh, basically a buried alive story, so I liked, was very unnerved by it, um, had, almost sets up like it's going to be go into yokai territory that's going to end up being this uh, man, this uh, tuberculosis suffering man who uh, is playing hide and seek and goes into a hope chest and then gets locked in and can't get out. His wife, who's having an affair with another man, finds him and doesn't let him out and lets him die inside of this hope chest. Sounds like the setup to, and then in the next part, she's going to be haunted by this, you know, by his spirit through this hope chest. It doesn't go in that direction. You know, it, it doesn't, it ends with, you know, just like, wow, that's, that's a shame that that happened. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that he kind of subverts those 
expectations. That when he does a horror story, it's just sort of a crime story that is horrific. And yes. The Dancing Dwarf really reads more like something that actually could be a horrible thing that happened. You know, yeah. this uh, poor guy getting pushed to the limit and mutilating this woman and then uh, burning, burning. the yeah, burning fellow parties alive. Everyone knocking the main uh, support plank over so they're trapped in the tent as it burns. Yeah. Um, but it is, you're right. It's way more um, uh, over the top than the other ones. The other ones we've discussed, Human Chair, Red Chamber, Stalk in the Attic, are surprisingly sort of subdued. They, they mm-hmm. Like I said, they have a an interest in psychological realism that's very advanced for its time. And Dancing Dwarf feels more like, uh, it, it feels a little more in line. There are other stories like Dancing Dwarf. There are no stories like The Human Chair. You yeah. Know? yeah, oh, exactly. Uh, which isn't to say that Dancing Dwarf isn't phenomenal. Like I said, just the the way he escalates the things and the way the narrator becomes more and more uncomfortable with the situation until it literally becomes this chaotic devastation, you know? Yeah, it's, it's cringe comedy. It's humiliation uh, sort of fun. You know what I mean? It has that feel of like, of like when you're watching just like, you're, it's very uncomfortable, very yeah. uncomfortable read. Yeah, and when, uh, when he presents the head of Ohana, you know, after he has severed it, and then her head says, ha ha, fooled you all, you know, and it seems like we're going to get that Red Chamber ending where the, the waitress was in on it the whole time. Yeah. It, uh, he, he reasons almost immediately, the narrator says, is that really her voice or is it that, you know, Roku was able to pitch his own to make it sound like hers and trick everybody. Another, yeah. you know, false ending before the next ending. Yeah. And again, we don't know what happened with the fire. We don't know who caused it. We don't know what, what, what actually went down. You know, yeah. because they're like drunkenly knocking things around, like the 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 uh, the trajectory towards mayhem is already headed there without without uh, uh, Roku doing it. You know, much like Gaspar Noe's uh, climax, I could say. <laughs> no, zero percent Gaspar Noe's climax. This movie. The, yeah. So for the last one, uh, it's the Hell of Mirrors. And this is one of his weirdest. He's, you know, he's somebody that they're all pretty weird, but this is one that both in approach and resolution and just the basic concept is as strange as the human chair, right? There's a guy, a story about a guy who's befriends a, um, it's, he's a very ugly guy. He's got a pimply face, and he befriends a guy who's obsessed with mirrors and lenses, right? In high school, they become friends. This guy, his friend has a monomania again. The only interest he has is in mirrors. And his, he gets out of college. His parents are given him money to be a layabout because they're rich, then they die, and he gets an inheritance. And he essentially uh, opens a mirror lab and mirror company and starts researching mirrors and lenses until one day the friend is called over the ugly friend who hates it too because he hates looking at himself in the mirrors he hates the convex mirror and the concave mirror that distort his feature and his friend starts building like these these like contraptions and areas to like have sex with his servants and being viewed from weird angles and that sort of thing and the the crux of the story is 
uh, one day the servants call the ugly friend to the house and there's a giant sphere in the house and no one knows what the hell it is. And the servants are like, he got inside the sphere. We think he's in the sphere. Um, he's just like making weird noises and won't come out. And so he's created this very intricate contraption that has a little door on it and has a bunch of lights and mirrors inside. And he crawls inside and gets either trapped in there or something's gone wrong, but he goes insane in the interior of this thing, which has created a perfectly, he's somehow created a perfectly smooth uh, mirrored interior surface where he can essentially see all angles of himself at all times. It's a very Lovecraftian sense of non-Euclidean geometry. You know that, his, I mean? that his reflection uh, covered his entire range of vision is what Rampo says. Yes. It's a very strange, very strange idea, but we are completely outside it. The ugly friend doesn't understand his buddy's monomania. The, he doesn't get an explanation of what's going on in the guy's head. He doesn't get any explanation of what's going on. He doesn't get his friend. He doesn't get what his friends want to see. And he ultimately doesn't understand what's driven his friend insane and broken his mind. And so it's, you know, it's the opposite of Stalker in the Attic. We're completely on the outside, sort of not understanding what's going on inside of this guy's head. And I think it's, it's a, the flip side, the perfect flip side of where we started to the arc of now we just don't know what's inside the mind of some people. We just yeah. can't know what's happening inside their crazy brains. And it manifests itself in the world in giant mirrored balls that can break your mind. It's just such a, uh, it's, it's very weird story. It's, it's just the idea of like, where did he get this idea? Um, well, a little insight to that can be found in his essay, Horrors of Film. Have you read that? Uh, yes. It's, yeah. uh, it's great because he had an interesting fear of cinema, which, you know, it's interesting to point out we're in the twenties and a lot of these films he's watching in the twenties, Japanese films are probably not going to be seeable anymore after the war, you know, considering yeah. uh, the war devastated so much of uh, the films that came out of Japan at that time. Yeah. But, but he sees films as, these giants on the screen who filled the whole theater um, that are who like in a concave mirror are distorted and bizarre. He says skin like fish scales pours deepest caves Um, and that, and the instantaneous extinction when the projection breaks and that they, they suddenly die. These images suddenly die in front of you. Yeah. Uh, he has this kind of interesting fear of reflections. And he had wanted to be a director. He had actually researched, on becoming a director and had read like what film theory was available. That makes perfect sense. Uh, But it's interesting to get his perspective that, you know, I think a normal person going to see a movie wouldn't think of was that we're seeing these reflections, these gigantic blown up people. And it's kind of horrifying. And I think that's where this come from, where Helmir's come from this morbid craze for optics that this character has and that the other character is terrified of. And again, this is an an unnamed narrator doing the first person commentary. And like you said, it's perfect because we get no insight into what's happening because this guy wants to stay away from this mirror house that's being erected. 
And uh, there's one scene where he walks into a room and uh, his friend's face is huge on the wall in the room. A giant projection onto the screen. It makes you think immediately of The Wizard of Oz, right? The, the gang walking into seeing this huge giant head. And again, this is long before Wizard of Oz came out. But uh, when the guy comes out after he's put himself in the mirror, come out behind a curtain, just like in Wizard of Oz, he says, wasn't that a remarkable show? And obviously, I think this is equating the horrors of film, the, the cinema that uh, Rampo was so petrified of to somebody who wants them themselves projected and put onto this huge screen. Another great story he wrote called The Traveler with the pasted rag picture, which is, uh, and again, sorry to spoil this one, you should definitely go out and read it, but it, uh, it's about a guy who becomes fixated with a girl he sees through a telescope. Yeah. And by the end, the, uh, the big reveal is that she's actually, she's a picture on, uh, you know, she's, she's not real. He's seeing, you know, he's looking to somebody's room and seeing this woman on a picture. And so it's rear window, it's wavelength, short <laughs> film about uh, love. Yeah, it's everything combined into one. And the kind of surreal ending that happens is that he asks his brother to look through the opposite end of binoculars, which shrinks him and he is able to join her inside of the painting. Um, so this idea, you know, of being distorted by these reflections, either being made giant or being made small. Yeah. Um, and Tom Thumb is another story that he brings up in more than one essay uh, when he was talking about um, desire to transform is another thing he talks about where Tom Thumb becomes so small, he becomes undetectable, which again, in his characters, you know, they want to be made invisible. They want to transform to become something else. So again, we have a character here who wants to become something else. He wants to put himself all around the room. He wants to see himself lusting after these maids at his house. And ultimately that leads him to want to just see nothing but himself. And just, you know, he only wants to see himself reflected as this giant, all encompassing thing that's all around him at all times, which drives him mad. <laughs> he ultimately can't take it. Yeah. But it's also, it's, it's interesting too, because the main character just can't understand his friend, you know, and it just can't get inside that guy's head at all. And the story stays very, offers no explanations. You know, the story stays very firmly outside of why one wants to enter the hell of mirrors. You know, it, it leaves you outside of it to sort of consider this, uh, overtly bonkers person from the outside. Absolutely. And like, I can't think of a more disturbing image described in one of his stories than when they walk in and see this sphere, which is like kind of haphazardly listing from side to side and the sound of somebody laughing inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's a great one. It's a strange one too. Yeah. Um, and again, it doesn't, it's interesting because it doesn't have the traditional glib ending, you know, it doesn't have the fake, you know, a lot of horror stories and, and horror uh, uh, art, the idea is you put the monster back in the box at the end, that by the end of it, you unleash a monster, the artwork unleashes a monster, and then the author puts it back in the box by the end. And a lot of his stories, the it's a glib take on putting the monster back in the box because the idea is you can't actually put it back in the box 
You know, it's really hard to put it back in the box. And he doesn't want to do that. And he's bringing it up. That's what he's showing you with his endings is that like, it's not actually easy to put these monsters back in the box. With this one, he makes no effort to put the monster back in the box. The story is, yeah, that guy went crazy. You know, that guy's mind was ruined. And uh, there's just no um, uh, uh, effort made on Rampo's part to sort of put the, the insanity away, to yeah. explain it, to have that final scene in Psycho, you know, let's explain what's happening inside this guy's head uh, uh, kind of bullshit. He doesn't want to do any of that. Yeah, well, the kind of ironic thing, too, is that the monsters put themselves in a box in a way. He puts yeah. himself inside the sphere, just like uh, <laughs> our, our guy put himself inside of a chair. You know, yeah. they're constantly putting themselves inside of things. And it's, again, all... And the stalker in the attic theoretically puts himself inside of jail. Absolutely. It's always these characters in this need to transform and put themselves away from the rest of humanity. They have enclosed themselves into something and become something else. And indeed, when they open the, the door and it comes out all disheveled, the narrator specifically says he's transformed into something else. You know, not only is he bad, but he looks like just this completely unkempt, naked animal yeah. <laughs> after he's come out of it. So it kind of reminds you a little bit of altered states too, where he goes yeah. into the sensory deprivation yeah. comes out as this crazy gorilla man. Yes. And it's also interesting talking about the, putting the monster in the box and how Rampo doesn't want to do that. Literally in Dancing Dwarf, the monster puts you in the box and cuts your head off. You know, yeah, that yeah. literally it's flipping that, that around in some way. Do we, have, do we have any more we want to talk about with Hell of Mirrors or can I, can I send it to you for your dessert selection, John? Oh, have go made, ahead. I'll, have we made it clear how much we love Rampo and just like dive in? You know, I would just reiterate again, there's nothing but good stuff. I still need to read a bunch of the novels. Uh, yeah. In fact, my favorite thing that he wrote was uh, The Strange Tale of Panorama Island, which is a novella-length story that's been adapted a few times. Yeah. Um, that's its own thing. It's you, know, you can't find that with the short story collections or anything. But there's lots to explore and absolutely find at least the short stories. Uh, apparently, the putting together of... Um, his first collection was a real painstaking process where his translator, you know, understood Japanese, but couldn't write it. And he could read English, but he couldn't speak it. You know, this kind of like convoluted thing where yeah. it took literally years. Yeah. To it took years. It took like four or five years. Yeah. To get an English translation of this going. So uh, painstaking and definitely worth it. He is just a marvel, a, what, just a, a game changer, not even a yeah. change, game setter, I would say. Yes. So in your, in your mind, you know, when you think of great progenitors of the crime genre and great crime writers, he uh, should be up there in sort of horror writers. He should be up there in your mind with Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. He's, he's that important uh, and just sort of immense of a figure. He's really, really great and really just so far ahead of the curve and just he's he's really of the stature of Poe to me yeah and a lot of his stories that we didn't get to uh including Panorama Island but also uh Canals of Mars for example are a lot more surreal and weird even than the ones we've been talking about yes yeah that's also why it's you call him he gets called a crime writer uh and uh, but he's also he's 
he's got that Lovecraft thing going on of he's a horror writer who sort of has crime structures to a lot of his work. You know what I mean? Yeah. It sort of bleeds between the two of them. You know, Lovecraft is more firmly horror than Rambo is, but it, it, it has that flavor. Again, Poe, same thing with Poe, where it's as much horror writing as it is crime writing. And John, what is your dessert pick? So I struggled with this because I really wanted to talk, I really wanted to name a Japanese film. And yeah. uh, he has been adapted many times in Japan. Uh, there's uh, Blind Beast is a fantastic movie. Uh, Masamura's adaptation of his novel. One, yeah. of the best, one of the best artist horror movies ever made. Uh, Horrors of Malformed Men is based on Panorama Island. That's fantastic. Yes. There have been uh, several adaptations of uh, Stalker in the Attic that you can check out. I've never seen them, but I'm sure they're pretty good. Um, Sukumoto, who incidentally is, I has such a sensibility compatible with Rampo yeah. that I could actually see him playing a lot of these characters in these books. Yes. Ironically, when he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when Shinya Sukumoto could play the guy, he could play the human chair, he could play the guy in Hell of Mirrors without a doubt. He could play the stalker in the act, he would be perfect for it. He could play the, the narrator in Red Chamber. Absolutely. Um, ironically, when he adapted uh, The Twins, which is a, a Rampo story, into Gemini, his uh, 1999 film, uh, he doesn't play the main character yeah. as he does in many of his movies, so that's kind of funny. Uh, and also, he made it a lot more like a J-horror or a uh, a yokai story. He, yeah. he really de- deviated from the, the original source. So it actually, it's not a very faithful adaptation of the story. And it's also not one of Tsukamoto's best movies. I, I like it a lot, but um, it's not, it's definitely not a Rampo-esque compared yeah. to some of his other stuff. So anyway, so I, I thought about all this and just thought that even with all these adaptations, it's really hard to point to one thing to say, that's Rampo. You know, that's like, yeah. that's what I want to say. That's the horrors of film as Rampo imagined. So what I'm going to say is the film Long Dream from 2000. I don't uh, know it. It's by the notoriously reclusive Ukrainian-Japanese director uh, Higuchinsky. And it's impossible to describe because it really is just like one long phantasmagoria of this character in a hospital. And it doesn't follow a straight line. It has characters who don't understand what's going on. It has this this obsession and this uh, monomania that you find in these stories. I would say tonally, it's very, it's probably the closest to Rampo I've ever seen in a Japanese film, which isn't to say that, you know, it really is exactly like him, but it's a great movie and it's, it's tonally correct. It's got the same ideas. So that's what I would drop as my dessert. Chris, what do you got? Uh, I cheated. I picked two things. I picked a pair of half an hour TV shows. If you know me, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV. First off, I picked It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's A Very Sunny Christmas episode in which Frank Reynolds, Danny DeVito, gets naked and hides himself inside a leather couch, which is at a party, in a party scene that people are getting on, and then famously overheats, gets covered in greasy sweatiness, and births himself out of, like, the vaginal birth canal of this couch. (laughs) Obviously, this is very similar to Human Chair. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) It is, uh, it's weird. There's something about Human Chair where it's both a ludicrous idea, but enough people have had the idea 
of being inside a fucking chair that I just don't know what to make of it. And so it's, it's always sunny in Philadelphia is one. The other one is Bull Shiatsu, a episode of Impractical Jokers in which the punishment was Joe's relaxation station in which one of the jokers, this is a reality TV show where they do practical jokes and somebody loses the episode and has to do a punishment. He's put inside of a massage chair in a mall <laughs> and forced to give people massages who's unwitting people who show up on this prank show, just sit in this chair and realize their massage chair very gradually is a dude massaging them, that there's actually a guy <laughs> inside of this fucking chair. And it's also interesting too, because there's a lot of, uh, they show behind the scenes, the effort that it takes to make this chair to fit somebody inside. They have to install like a fan and a light and like a way for him to like use the bathroom and things. So it's incredibly similar to like the logistical problems uh, delineated in Ranpo's story. I, I have no idea. It seems impossible that the makers of either Bolshiatsu or Very Sunny Christmas have read Rampo. It just doesn't seem realistic to suggest that, <laughs> that Rampo was an influence on these two things, which makes it all the more sort of like uh, a, a mystical synchronicity between these two things, some strange harmonic convergence between these two things. That's but amazing. Are, I never would have put it together, but that scene with Frank, uh, Danny DeVito, <laughs> pulling his, pushing his way out of the couch and just drenched in yeah. grease and sweat is so horrific. <laughs> yes. It's nightmarish. It's completely nightmarish. And it's completely, and it's, and it's weird. It's weird in a very like dancing dwarf kind of way. You know? Yeah. Um, and you may realize with these two uh, desserts of yours, uh, another thing I could bring up is Nathan for you. When he wants to spy on people, he puts himself inside of a, a video arcade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's an interesting thing that, that there is some impulse of like, I'm going to when, especially when you get like a prank show or a hidden camera show or a reality show, let's put somebody inside of something weird. Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting impulse that uh, that Rampo was hit on there. It is, but we'll have to find out if the Always Sunny people are Rampo fans or not, because that would make them even cooler. <laughs> I think there's a higher chance that the Impractical Jokers uh, people have heard of this, because one of the guys on that show has some association with Kevin Smith that he like works with Kevin Smith or does comic book stuff with him. And there was a um, anime or maybe a manga uh, made of human chair. That's very, very famous. If you look up human chair, a lot of it comes up about this, this manga that I've never actually uh, read. And so I think that there's a chance that because he's like an incredible comic book nerd that like, he somehow had at least heard of this concept, you know, the Junji. Okay. I buy it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. It's just such a strange idea. It seems impossible in both cases. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the people who write It's Always Sunny are fairly literate, reasonable people. So maybe they it's have always good possible. All right. Uh, check them out, everybody. Check out. Uh, our other podcast for this month which is going to be 
myself, Chris Funderburg, and Marcus Penn talking about the upcoming Toronto Film Festival and our picks for must-see movies that we're most excited about. That will be our movie podcast. This meeting of the Red Chamber is closed. <laughs>